Friends, this is our final sermon in this series entitled The Path, Getting From Here to There. We began this sermon series remembering that each of us is a unique creation of God created for a distinct purpose. And I put the same quote in the bulletin that was in it when we began the series. You are a part of this infinite vastness of the universe, a part of the infinite vastness of God who is love. And yet in all of it, you are literally unique. None has been or ever will be created exactly like you. When God formed you, God formed you uniquely. And what we decide to do with our lives is our gift back to the God who gives us life. Now, as during this series, we have talked about the importance of having a compelling vision that gets us out of bed of the need to have the support of family, friends, mentors, those folks who will help us look out for our best interest and for what it is that we want to do. And last week we did a little work looking at the importance of having strategy and plan, something that we could measure. And this week we're going to look at what has been described as one of humanity's least favorite topics, accountability. I mean, I just say the word and I don't see anybody smiling at me right now, but maybe you will as the sermon continues. But this word brings up negative memories for many of us, of histories of encounters that we have had. We think of maybe being put down or harshly disciplined. It has a punitive connotation for us, particularly when we think of looking backward. We're going to be held accountable for something in the past. Maybe we think of a Senate hearing where we're going to determine exactly who was accountable and then take them to task. That's not the type of accountability I am discussing this morning. I'm talking about accountability that is forward-looking, not backward-looking. Accountability that is a help that enables us to reach goals. That will help us mature in faith, as it says Paul wrote in the letter to the Ephesians, to become the person that God intended for us to be or to achieve the personal goals that we have set for ourselves or maybe even work goals that have been set for us. The literal meaning of being held accountable is to answer to a trust. In this case, we are talking about trusting each other to speak the truth in love so that we are able to reach our potential. We're not talking about just finding fault or criticizing. That doesn't help anyone. That makes us shrink. So accountability is to be sure that what we have entrusted with, to someone else actually comes to fruition. Gracious accountability helps us grow in every area of life, how we feel in our key relationships, reaching goals and performance in what we Methodists call sanctification, growing in the likeness of Christ, growing in our love of God and of neighbor. Let me give you a neutral example, if I may. If we decide that we are going to fly from Nashville to somewhere else, we are going 
to hope that that pilot is held accountable for getting us to our destination. The pilot is entrusted with our lives. The pilot is entrusted with equipment on the part of the airline. The pilot would never take off without making sure that there is a specific plan for altitude, for speed, etc. The very first accountability system that the pilot is going to be looking at is that instrument panel to make sure that there's enough fuel, that they're able to get to the right altitude or they have achieved the right altitude. And then there are towers all along the country that are prepared to, or people in towers, I should say, that are prepared to talk to the pilot and to guide the pilot if they start drifting off course. Now, a pilot would tell you it's much more advanced than what I've just described, but that's the general overview, if you will. So accountability is making sure that we have the guidance system in place that will help us achieve whatever it is that we have set our minds to achieve. It's so helpful to have the right tone here. Earlier I talked about Mary Poppins and that spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down, but it's really true. The tone helps determine whether or not we will achieve our goals. Is the tone that which builds us up and cheers us on and encourages us, or is the tone one that tears us down and deflates us? As Christians, we recognize that none of us is perfect, that we are all broken. Many of you know the story behind this baptismal font, but if you don't know it, I want to tell you that I think this is one of the most powerful statements in this sanctuary. This font was damaged during the tornado that leveled Madison Street, and this chunk of marble was missing afterwards. And the decision was made to incorporate this font into the altar to remind everyone, each of us, that when we enter into God's presence, we are all broken and we are all in need of God's grace. And the good news is that in the waters of baptism, we are claimed by God. We are told that we are God's dearly beloved children and that nothing can separate us from the love of God and that God is cheering us on and wanting us to make the most of our lives. So meant to warn Austin that I was moving, but I trust the camera moved with me if you're worshiping online. Henry Cloud has noted how important grace is, that we extend it not just to ourselves, but also to others, because the one of the fundamental principles of the human condition is that we judge ourselves, we evaluate ourselves by our intentions, but we judge others by their behaviors. We evaluate ourselves by what we intended and we judge others by what they did. And when we do that, we set ourselves up to be judgmental and critical instead of grace-filled. And so part of our lesson is to remember to take a deep breath and to step back and to evaluate our tone so that we are truly speaking the truth in love. When we want to hold 
someone else accountable or we want to be held accountable. Tone is the most important factor. The second most important factor is to make sure that we have mutually agreed upon expectations, that we know what we want to do and what we are willing to do. We have to have that internal alignment before we can talk to someone else about helping to hold us accountable. I'm going to go back to my pilot illustration again. I'm feeling a little more confident because I look out, we have a pilot who usually sits right over there. He's not here to correct me. So um, we're just trusting that I know what I'm talking about. But a pilot will fi file a flight plan plan with the FAA saying, for example, that I'm going to fly at 50,000 feet, 520 knots, take off at a 46 degree heading. I sound like I know what I'm talking about. Um, but these are the expectations, altitude, speed, direction. Again, I know it's more complicated than this, but if that same pilot who has stated, I'm going to be flying at 50,000 feet or has been told to fly at 50,000 feet, suddenly drops down to 35,000 feet, Someone in that control tower is going to come on and say, wait, 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 that's not where you're supposed to be. You need to get back up to 50,000 feet. What's going on here? What does this look like in other areas of life? Well, if you're in a difficult relationship, maybe this means that you agree to go to counseling once a week. And for whatever reason, one of you decides, oh, I think I'm going to do something else. No you have not met the mutually agreed upon expectation, and so there is room for discourse. In addition to having this mutually agreed upon expectation, it's important to be able to define what done looks. Brene Brown says in one of her books, I don't remember which one, but that she was speaking to a large group of people and she asked a series of questions and then told them that if the audience, that if they would write down what they were most interested in hearing her speak about the next day, she would do her best to address the topics that surfaced. She asked her assistants to put the results in her room to make sure that she had them that night before she got up to speak the next day. Now, what Brene Brown expected was that her assistants would take all of these sheets of paper, would comb through them, and identify for her the top five topics that surfaced on the papers. But when she came to her hotel room that night, after going out to have a meal with someone else, she found in a file folder on her desk all of the papers no analysis done whatsoever. And of course, she immediately went into panic mode, but she realized that she had not described done. She said, give me the answers. They gave her the answers. She didn't say, give me an analysis of the answers. So again, defining done is key here. I have a friend who was trying to teach her children how to keep the kitchen clean or how to clean the kitchen after a meal. And she said she was always disappointed in what the kitchen looked like. So finally she got the bright idea of cleaning the kitchen herself after a meal and she took photos and texted them to her kids and said, this is what I want it to look like the next time. 
of another friend who was teaching his teenage daughter to drive, and he told her that he was describing Dunn as when he got in the car and he no longer feared for his life before they reached the destination. So again, defining Dunn is important. We cannot wait if we are going to be held accountable to something until the end is reached. Accountability is a system that works along the way. So I was speaking about the pilot who was flying. If you get down to 35,000 feet, you need to have a course correction. The same is true for us. If we say this is our goal, this is our vision, this is our strategy, this is our plan, and then we find ourselves not executing what it is that we want to do, we need those people who can speak the truth in, to us in love so that we can identify why we are not doing what we said we would do first. We don't need to go to that very next step of encouragement, but identify what's the underlying reason so that we can affect the change. Here, I want to stress that a problem that's not fixed becomes a pattern. And we have to act quickly so that instead of being a person who missed a day going for a walk, we become a person who doesn't go for walks. If you sleep in for one day, the problem can be fixed. But if you sleep in for two to three days, if this is your goal, to walk every day, to lose weight or lower your blood pressure or whatever it is, then suddenly it's a pattern, and patterns are much more difficult to correct than problems are. I've been told that there's a significant sporting event later today, and I mean, just think if coaches waited until the end of the game for accountability, after they'd lost. No, 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 you're not going to do that. You're going to have a timeout. You're going to have one heck of a halftime talk, potentially, if you do not think that your players are doing what you want them to do. And some of you will be talking to the television, offering your coaching advice along the way, too. But you get the point of how important it is to offer advice along the way. Now, I've been talking about goals in general, but the ultimate goal for us is to grow in maturity in Christ. That was what was lifted up in the letter to Ephesians that Pastor Valerie read. And for Methodist, this is part of our DNA, to have an accountability system. We lost it along the way, but there have been major attempts to get it back. Methodism flourished precisely because there were small groups where people watched over one another in love and spoke to one another in love to encourage them to grow in Christ. The method for this was the class meeting. Now, this started in 1742, and I happen to think this is an interesting story. It started as part of a capital campaign. They were trying to raise money for a building in Bristol, England, and they decided that they were going to ask every single Methodist to contribute one penny. Remember, this is 1742. One penny per week so they could pay off the debt. Edward Foy was the person who came up with this idea. 
historians don't know anything else about him. This is the one time his name pops up in the historical record. But people were worried that those who were the poorest would be unable even to make that payment of one penny. And he said, I will take the 11 poorest members of the society and be their class leader. And if they are unable to pay because of their circumstances, I will. But what they discovered, the blessed unintended consequence, was what they discovered was that it was in the class meetings as they interacted with people that they realized that Methodism was not living up to its full potential. That those people who said they wanted to be Methodist Christians were not following John Wesley's three general rules of do no harm, do good, in modern language, we say stay in love with God, but for Wesley, it was attend upon the ordinances of God, and this was attending worship, reading your Bible, participating in Holy Communion, fasting, those spiritual disciplines that remind us of God's call upon our lives and help us deepen our walk with Christ. These class meetings were comprised of about 12 people, and it was the leader's business to see each person in his or her class at least once a week in order to receive this offering for the poor, to inquire how their souls prospered, to advise, reprove, comfort, or exhort as the occasion might require. And then in addition to meet the minister and the stewards of the society once a week, in order to pay into the stewards the money that they had received to remove that temptation, to hold on to it, but to go ahead and turn it over, to show their account of what each person had contributed, and to inform the minister of any that are sick or of any that, and I'm quoting, walk disorderly and refuse to be reproved. Initially, the class leader met each person at his or her own house. However, it was quickly decided that it would be more practical if they just met at a designated place once a week. And Wesley, John Wesley, founder of Methodism, soon realized that in the class meeting, advice or reproof was given as needed, quarrels made up, misunderstandings removed, and after an hour or two spent in this labor of love, the meeting ended with prayer and thanksgiving. He said, it was here that people began to bear one another's burdens and to naturally care for each other as they daily had a more intimate acquaintance with each other than they had more love for each other. He went so far as to quote this passage from Ephesians, again, that Pastor Valerie read. And speaking the truth in love, they grew up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplied, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, increased unto the edifying of itself in love. It was so much more than a capital campaign. It was a way to help people grow in love of God and love of neighbor. It became so important that John Wesley made it a requirement, if you were going to be a Methodist, that you become a part of this small group where you could answer the question, 
how is it with your soul? Or again, as we might say in contemporary language, how is your life with God? This was not a Bible study, as important as Bible studies are. This was not a group that met to focus on transferring information, but it was a group that was focused on transformation of heart and life, on being held accountable for maturity in Christ. It was so effective that people began to talk about how God was at work in their lives that people would come to these meetings and suddenly decide that they believed in God because they heard others describing how God was at work and they wanted that same thing for themselves. I already told you that. That became so important, Wesley made it a requirement. So what happened? Well, actually what happened is that, and the reason that this fell along the wayside, is that Methodism grew so quickly that they weren't able to have a plan in place to make sure every leader was equipped to lead. And so in some cases they had poor leadership, in some cases they couldn't find enough leaders to put in place. But at its heart, this has always been a strength of our Methodist DNA of our heritage and of who we can yet be, to be those people who hold one another accountable in love and who do so by speaking the truth in love, who encourage us to grow into our full potential. Some historians have speculated that the reason that there was not a British Revolution, when there was a French Revolution and where there were other revolutions during the same time period, is because these Methodists were so transformed and so committed to caring for the poor in their midst that the social ills were not as bad as in England as they were in other parts. What would it look like? if we had an accountability system like that in place for ourselves, if we were that committed to being the hands and feet and heart of Christ so that others might know that God loved them. That is the invitation that is before us. And with that, friends, I want to underscore how important this is. I was joking about the Super Bowl earlier, but if you watch the Super Bowl, and if you're like me, you watch the Super Bowl so you can watch the Super Bowl ads, you will notice that there are going to be two ads this year that are sponsored by Christians. It's part of a campaign called He Gets Us, and it's the money has been raised by people that are concerned that the witness of Christianity has become so flawed that people know what we are against instead of what we are for, that this is an attempt at a course correction to say, no, this is who Jesus is, and this is who his followers are called to be. So I invite you to watch those. They might spark conversation with someone, but whether you watch them or not, the invitation is the same for us to make sure that we have people in our lives who can speak the truth and love to us so that we don't become complacent and we don't say, oh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's true. But God's expectation is that we will continue to grow as long as we draw breath. May it be so. Amen. <laughs>